Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Your branding and website are the first things your audience will see. In the ever-expanding world of ICOs and blockchain startups, you need to stand out from the pack. OnRamp is a full-service creative and design agency that will help you amplify your brand with the perfect website, logo, collateral, or custom design project. Get big results in no time by visiting thinkonramp.com. My guest today is Gideon Lewis Krauss, writer at large of the New York Times Magazine and a contributor at Wired. Welcome, Gideon. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. You wrote this week's Wired cover story on the boardroom battle at Tezos. What did you uncover? Uh, that's a that's a big question. I mean, I, I'm not sure how much of it was just was really uncovering stuff versus following up on what all of the rumors and allegations that already had existed in public since at least last fall. So it was it was less un, it was less an act of uncovering than an act of trying to figure out like what could actually be confirmed and what was rumor and because there this. So many of the actors involved ended up, you know, felt felt so hurt and and took such a conspiratorial, conspiratorial attitude about things. And there was so much misinformation that had spread that it was more of a process of uh, refinement and discrimination, I think, than a process of uncovering. And if you were to relate to somebody who maybe wasn't so familiar with this whole Tezos controversy, how would you tell the story of what happened there? Well, um, Arthur and Kathleen Brightman, a married couple, had developed this technology that they'd been working on for the last couple of years and had decided to pursue a Swiss ICO as their model of um, jumpstarting the, the platform. And at the time when they initially decided, nobody, uh, Ethereum had, had gone the same route and had raised about $18 million. Nobody had raised a whole lot more than that. So they thought that it was a way to raise something between 10 and $20 million. By the time that they actually had their ICO in the in July of 2017, the ICO market had become, begun to heat up considerably. And they uh, raised what was the, the greatest ICO raise at the time of about $232 million. But since virtually all of it was taken in Bitcoin and Ether, and their ICO was immediately before last year's dramatic rally in the prices of crypto assets, by Christmas, they the Swiss foundation that controlled the assets they brought in during the fundraiser um, had about $1.2 billion. And in the meantime, the agreement that they had with a South African expat in Switzerland named Johan Gevers had disintegrated, and there was um, a battle for control over the 
the direction of the project, more or less. Givers was the head of their board, correct? He was the, the president and founder of the foundation that had taken the donations in exchange for future tokens. And so what happened between them? What were the allegations on both sides? And what did you find to be true and not true? Uh, well, there were a lot of allegations made uh, in both directions, not just by the two of them, but by a whole host of onlookers. The And there are sort of phases to the acrimony that developed, where initially after the after the ICO, there was the perception by the Brightmans that Gavers was um, working beyond his remit and was micromanagerially preoccupied with incredibly small tasks. And the impression that they'd gotten from the Swiss attorneys and others was that the point of the foundation structure was a level of budgetary oversight, um, but that it wasn't an operational nexus, that it was the, the it was the people who exercised the like budgetary discretion um, in order to help other people do the operational side of the project. And it became pretty clear early that that was not how Gavers viewed his own role, that he thought that he, in fact, had uh, a very strongly operational role. And their impression was that he was trying to exert more control over the project via the foundation than the foundation structure was supposed to allow for. Um, you know, on his side, he felt like part of the point of the foundation structure was that the Brightmans were legally separated from the funds to prevent um, mismanagement or fraud. And that, in fact, they had they should have no say over the direction of the foundation and that they had uh, an arm's length operational role, but that all of the executive and management decisions should be made by him and, and the board at the foundation. But they, the Brightmans felt like the decisions that he was making were either of a, a somewhat strange granularity or, uh, or strange focus, or they were inviting outright conflicts of interest. Um, so, for example, he had proposed uh, someone that he was he saw as the acting uh, COO of his previous company, Monitas, which is now bankrupt, but at the time was a going concern. He had proposed uh, that COO to function as a joint executive for the foundation and the and Monitas, his company, and that struck the Brightmans as a, a rather peculiar request for a foundation that had at the time more than two hundred million dollars under uh, of of assets. And in your estimation, who's more at fault in the accusations that have been flying back and forth? Um, well, I mean, I, you know, I, I should say that I was able to talk to Givers in Zug in Switzerland before the Tezos ICO, when he was really excited about the ICO to come. And so we had a long interview then at the time on then after everything disintegrated and I began to work on this story in January, I got tried to get in touch with him multiple times and he declined to talk to me. So I should say that that Givers' side in this story is not well represented by his own decision not to talk, not to give me his side of everything that happened. So like my ability, I mean, this was not a single source story to the Brightmans. I was uh, because that also would have been 
journalistically irresponsible. So I decided ultimately that I was going to base everything in the story only on the written documentation that I could come up with. And luckily, there was an enormous amount of written documentation because there were so many emails written and so many emails submitted to the foundation authorities and burn, so many emails submitted to the law firm that was conducting an audit in the fall. So there was a lot of material. And I had decided that when it came to the details of the actual conflict, that rather than like simply rely on like single verbal source of, you know, one of the counterparties that I was going to rely almost exclusively on written documentation. So everything that I uh, include in the piece is backed up by clear written, uh, written documentation. And based on that documentation. So based, so based on that, so I, I can speculate about how Givers, Givers's objection to like what, like what he saw as the Brightman's attempt to exercise what he called undue influence over the foundation. But as far as everything that I was able to review, it is very difficult not to believe that Givers was not fulfilling um, his obligations as the president and founder of the um, Tezos Foundation, that he um, had in fact invited clear conflicts of interest, um, that he did not treat his employees particularly well, and that he saw himself as the, in his words, visionary thought leader behind the project and seemed to believe that the actual technology was a, a mere engineering commodity that he could purchase and implement with or without the collaboration of the brick. And was he the visionary behind the project? Uh, no, I mean this was this was entirely developed by Arthur and then Arthur and Kathleen, and he freely admits that he's not a technologist himself. That in all of the ways that he describes himself, he describes himself as a tech evangelist, and he's he's certainly a very good talker. And I, I do think he's right to say that some part of the success of the ICO was devoted to his. Uh, energetic evangelism on behalf of Tezos, but he he certainly does not seem to have played any technical role. And didn't he also try to pay himself a huge amount of money shortly after the ICO? <sighs> yeah, a couple months after the ICO. So it, part of the foundation structure in Switzerland entails that uh, the founder and the board members are very limited in the compensation they can derive from their participation in, in the foundation. So when it became apparent that he was unable to pay himself an executive level salary as foundation president, he proposed himself as executive director of the foundation, which was going to be an arm's length salaried executive role in addition to his seat on the board, on the foundation council. And for that, he proposed a remuneration of about 300,000 francs per year, plus uh, a whole series of token allocations, and uh, it gets very complicated, his justification for some of this, but a whole series of token allocations based on what he claimed were verbal agreements that he'd struck with Arthur that, that there's no evidence for and that nobody else seems to agree with his interpretation of. But yes, he seemed 
to be paying himself what he believed based on simultaneous written communications he had with other people, tokens that were going to be worth anywhere from about a million and a half to $7 million a year. We're going to talk more about the Tezos controversy as well as lessons to be learned from it. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. OnRamp is a full-service creative and design agency that has helped numerous companies, including many in the blockchain and crypto space, maximize their brand awareness, gain traction, and accelerate growth. Whether you're a startup company launching a new brand or an established brand exploring a new campaign, OnRamp has you covered. OnRamp has a passion for boosting business results and can help with everything from logo and website design to full creative execution. Focus on your core technology and leave the rest to OnRamp. To learn more and see how they've helped passionate entrepreneurs achieve their dreams, go to thinkonramp.com. I am speaking with Gideon Lewis Krauss, contributor at Wired. I wanted to ask you also about the moment in the story where you describe how one of Givers's colleagues, the person that he tried to, I guess, bring onto, somehow bring into Tezos to work on Tezos, who was actually one of his colleagues at Monitas, how that person had bullied you. Can you talk a little bit more about the connection between what was happening at Monitas and then what led to this moment? So uh, again, this stuff this stuff gets extremely complicated, and one of the challenges of this of this story was to to streamline the information in a way that would be um, satisfying and coherent as a narrative without getting too bogged down in in some of the intricacies here. But basically, Johan had met a um, an American expat who'd been living um, and working as a banker in Switzerland for the last fifteen years, named Tom Gustinus, in Zug, and he apparently told Gustinus that. Um, Monitas was not in the best financial shape. And he, starting in August, August is the first written documentation we have where he is in emails referring to Gustinus as the COO of his company, Monitas, which we now know more or less by that time seems to have had no paid employees. Gustinus, for his part, claims that he was helping out unofficially for no compensation on some projects to try to salvage Monitas. And he told me that he had the idea that if he could find an investor who would purchase like what remained of Monitas, which was, was basically just the IP, that he thought that he could be installed as the COO or CEO of the ultimately recapitalized company. So Gustinus claims that he was never officially COO or officially paid by Monitas. Giver seems to was pretty clear in that he thought of Gustinus as his company's COO. But Gustinus was very frank with me about um, his hope that he would um, package a deal to save the company and end up installed as CEO. And then because he was involved with um, helping uh, Givers on the Monitas work, he ended up getting dragged into the Tezos saga because nobody else at that point was talking to Givers. And Gustinus felt like he could be a kind of ombudsperson going back and forth between the Brightmans and Givers to try to find some peaceful resolution to the acrimony. It seemed in your article that you were trying to draw a link to how maybe Givers, because he knew Monotas was failing and obviously Tezos had been this huge success, that he was trying to bring Monotas along for the ride and ride on the coattails of that success to revive this company. Is that a fair 
characterization? It does certainly seem that way. And there were a lot of rumors about even more explicit attempts to yoke the two together. Although there was, I couldn't, um, there was no way to, to determine because so much of it was had just come out of people's recollections of conversations. There was there was not enough written evidence for me to determine whether that was true. But many people certainly had the impression that Givers was trying to find a way to package Monetas with the you know near billion dollars that this found this that the Tezos Foundation had. And certainly in the language that he used, both when he proposed a dual executive to be shared between the two entities, and later when he seemed like he felt like he had prevailed in in the uh, management struggle in January, he used very similar language to talk about how the two companies could be like two sides of a coin. So it, it does seem like that was one of the things that was going on, although the um I mean, the lineaments of it seem to be relatively clear, but it's hard to get clarity on the the, the explicit details of, of how he seemed to think that that was going to work. And then to circle back to that question that I, I asked earlier, I wanted to hear you tell the story of this moment where Tom Gustinus had bullied you at that conference. It was, it seemed, you know, what you had described was pretty circumspect, but I imagine that it was even more dramatic than it seemed to read in the article. You know, um, but then he did apologize later. And um, but, but tell, can you describe what he did at the conference? You know, it, it's not totally clear to me. He got he got very worked up about something that he thought that I was doing. He seemed to believe that I was that I was there as an as an agent of the Brightmans, that I was in the tank for the Brightmans. He, at the time, he told me that he knew about all of the other things that I had written about Tezos, but. I hadn't written anything about Tezos. In fact, I hadn't written anything about cryptocurrency before. So he seemed to have an idea that I was not uh, an unbiased outside observer, that I, I had some personal connection to the, to the Brightmans, which I, I did not. And I said to him, like, you know, I, I have been trying for months to talk to everyone involved in this story, but the, the lawyers in Zugro won't write back to me, and the third board member won't write back to me, and Gavers won't write back to me. So I'm just doing my best to talk to the as many people as I can who have firsthand knowledge of what happened. But he seemed very alarmed and very convinced that somehow I was there in, uh, in a capacity of journalistic bad faith. But and later, when we discussed it uh, more calmly, we we agreed that there was the the lesson perhaps to be drawn from it was that there was something about this whole saga that like really got people strangely and disproportionately worked up. I, I mean, I'm not saying actually that the Brightmans were disproportionately worked up. I, I really understand why the Brightmans were as frustrated as they were, but this was something that that like really drove people to fierce tribal camps. And there was some perception there that I was like on the, the war path to hurt him. And I, I thought, it you know, this is one of the obvious ironies of the story is that something that was supposed to function as uh, a new mechanism for democratic coordination across like previous boundaries had led to such uh, tribal division and rancor. And what lessons do you think are the lessons that cryptocurrency teams that are trying to have ICOs can draw from what happened here with Tezos? Well, I mean, I'm certainly not the first person to say that 
the Swiss ICO model, while it was a very clever attempt to um, find sound legal and financial footing for to launch a platform, it is probably not a particularly wise way for people to go about doing it for a whole variety of reasons. But at the same, you know, like the this clearly the safest way to do it is to bootstrap the network the way that Bitcoin did. But that obviously took years and years for Bitcoin and and people have new ideas and they want to get them get them going right away. But what what I think the lesson here which is a broad startup lesson is that the difficulty is building the network um that it, it's sort of easy actually to get the money but it's it, even once you have the money it's not all that clear how one goes about building the network and that people have become so focused on the way that ICOs seem to like link broad network participation with solicitation of of financial resources that like the promise here is that it comes with like an instant jump started built in community but that as it turns out that that's pretty hard to do and it's pretty hard to do simultaneously well we'll see how teams cope with that challenge in the future it's been great having you on the show thanks for coming on unconfirmed thank you so much for having me laura it's been a pleasure Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast episode. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Selby, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening.